Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the London Is Blue podcast, your home for all things Chelsea FC. Nick, Dan, and myself cover all the match reviews from the latest Chelsea matches. We cover the team news and even throw you some exclusive interviews. Thank you already for being an awesome listener. And you know what? Let's jump right in. All right, Chelsea fans, this is our second episode of the week as usual. Joining me again are Dan and Nick and Mike jumping back on the line to join us as well. So gentlemen, thank you for coming back. But we do want to let everyone know that we have a special guest for this episode. We have Matt Law from The Telegraph joining us for the first time. Welcome to the pod, Matt. Hi, guys. Good to be here. It is uh, obviously you're someone who us and I'm assuming most other Chelsea fans follow quite closely. So we're excited to, uh, you know, just have someone with uh, your knowledge of the club and everything on the pod. So uh, with that being said, we want to take the opportunity to, you know, bring you in our social media questions a little bit and kind of, as fans have asked us questions from the week post Bournemouth and heading into the international break, we thought this would be a good time to kind of kick some off. So Nick, um, I'd like you to kind of start off, uh, maybe talk about one of Matt's recent articles he's done. That's right. We, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on this pod about uh, Gary Cahill over the years. We've had a lot of social media interaction on on this particular player. You recently did a piece on him about how he's one of Chelsea's best purchases in the modern era. Uh, why do you think the narrative have sh- has shifted around this player so regularly, even though he's won everything there is to win? It's one of the things that I can't quite get to grips with, not being a Chelsea supporter. Obviously, I follow the club extremely closely. 
I have an affinity to them, but I'm not an actual supporter. And the one thing I've always struggled with with Chelsea in the last few years is the split of opinion on Gary Cahill. It's always really surprised me. I just would have assumed from um, an outside perspective that he would be... Um, club legend might be a bit strong, but certainly a sort of hero figure, um, given what he's achieved with the club, given his attitude, um, given his leadership skills. And yet I always find there's certainly on social media, there's a massive split. Um, and it's really 50-50 between those who seem to agree with me. And I, I see him very much as, as being pound for pound at £7 million and with what he's won one of the best purchases of modern era, not necessarily one of the best players, but one of the best purchases. Um, and then a real split of people who, who just won't have it and, and don't seem to rate him and, and don't seem to think that the, the medals and the achievements warrant the, uh, the praise that I, I feel is due. And I also find it very odd at the moment that the club captain, a guy with his experience, a guy like I say, with his ambassadorial skills, he's, he's acted so well for Chelsea. Um, when he's left out the squad, there's just no debate. There's a lot of people willing to write him off and, and say, let's forget about him. I'm not even necessarily saying he, he should be in the team, but I just I just find, as an outsider, the, the attitude towards him a little bit strange. So, man, I, I would kind of be interested, since you know Gary came in £7 million, Azpilicueta comes in £7 million, if you were kind of trying to draw it up and make a determination on who you think was the better seven million pound acquisition, would it be Gary Cahill or uh, Cesar Aspilicueta? The both. Uh, that is a very difficult question. I mean, <laughs> I would have them both both down as as two of the best signings in, like I say, in in Chelsea's modern era. Um, and I, I do think that the, the, both of them are quite interesting because both of them sort of came in with very little fanfare. Probably they weren't expected to make an impact on the team and, and neither of them did to start with that in actual fact. You know, Gary couldn't get in the team to start with. Aspie struggled to get in the team to start with, particularly at right back, which is what he came in as. Um, and over time, they've both, you know, really kind of worked their way in and, and proved to managers their worth. Um, I suspect most Chelsea fans would, would think that Aspie is, is a better player um, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I mean, Cahill has had a, probably a better international career than Aspin. I appreciate Aspie's Spanish, which makes it more difficult. I, I think they're very much on a par. What I would say is, obviously, Cahill has, has captained the team more up to this point than Aspie and has, has won more because of the era that he joined in. And I think has probably seen off greater challenges to his position over the years. I think that he came in pretty much as a fourth-choice central defender. He's had numerous, numerous defenders kind of come into the club since he's been here, and he's often seen them off. We saw David Luiz off the first time. Um, so I think at the moment, for me, Cahill would be above Aspie, but not, that's not to say that Aspie wouldn't move ahead of, of Cahill in the, in the coming years. But, I mean, wow... It's a nice debate to have, isn't it, about which one's been the, the better signing because they've been unbelievably good value. And I always think it's interesting when people who don't look at Chelsea closely will sort of lazily accuse them of buying success and sort of, you know, the the petro millions and all this that Wenger used to moan about. 
And that really can overlook some of the good value signings. And there's a lot there. I mean, not all at 7 million, but, but those two are a great example of it. it's not just spending vast amounts of money. It's wise signings as well. I think that brings up a really good transitionary topic to that of Ruben Loftus-Cheek. And I know that you put together a piece recently on Sari's comments on Ruben and the work maybe technically that he needs to continue to do to improve. But you know, he also is potentially considering a January move if he doesn't really get the opportunities for playing time that he would like as someone who's now you know started for England you know, in the in the world you know has had a chance to play for England in the World Cup you know what what do you see for for his future in the club are you kind of concerned or do you believe that there's a, a path forward for him? Um, from a Chelsea perspective, I'm, I'm probably concerned. I mean, just just to kind of run you through how the events have gone as I I've seen it when when Ruben went to the World Cup and over the summer. He was very, very much of the opinion, and I know this for certain, that he wanted to come back and make a go of it at Chelsea. Uh, he thought he was in a good position to do so. He felt ready to, to really challenge for a place. And there was, at that stage, kind of during the World Cup and just after the World Cup, in his mind, I don't think there was really any... He said in interviews he wanted to play, but he's got to say that. But in his mind, it was always very much he wanted to come and make a go of it at Chelsea. Uh, he certainly wasn't kind of looking for an exit path then. Um, and a, coming on in the first game, I think that will have given him encouragement. But that Arsenal, being left out of the squad for the Arsenal game, I know really, really disappointed him um, and caught, set about a chain of events where he thought very carefully. He had two meetings with Sari in the week after the, the Arsenal game. I think initially he did did kind of express a wish to go out on loan immediately because he was so worried. And then I think the club and Sari said to him, look, we, we believe in you. Wait for the cup competitions to come a little bit. We're going to have to use this squad a lot more than it looks like at the moment. You will get opportunities. We do think you can force your way into this side. Um, and it, it pretty much ended with him at the end of that week, agreeing to give it till January, which is where we're at now. He's, he's, given himself until January in his mind to, to get a good run. Otherwise, I think he will really, really push for a move. And the, the difficulty for Chelsea within this is that at the end of this season, he'll have two years left on his contract. Now, if come at the end of this season, he's either gone out on loan and decided he wants to leave or he's stayed but not played and decided he wants to leave, with two years on his contract, Chelsea will be in a position where they probably have to sell him next summer if he decides that because I don't think they can afford to take it down to a year um, particularly as if he will just want to go out on loan again and his value will just decrease while he's playing for somebody else so it's a huge huge kind of eight or nine ten months for him coming up um, and with Kovacic there with Barkley seemingly ahead of him at the moment in Sari's pecking order and also Another player we've all forgotten at the moment is Cesc Fabregas to come back from injury. It's going to be really tough for him. Really, really tough for him. And I don't think the odd Europa League game here and the odd sort of Carabao Cup game there is, is going to convince him his futures at Chelsea. So I, I, I don't really see how this one ends well for Chelsea in terms of keeping him, but that, they might surprise me. You know, Matt, not to put you on the hot seat, I think... Um, uh, 
everyone's concern about Ruben is, I feel like a lot of people are, you know, putting this you know, all their hopes in the the academy on him succeeding. But I think, you know, my personal question is, do you think, I mean, while he is a Premier League talent, do you think he's a top six Premier League talent, in your opinion? And if, if you don't want to answer, you know, you don't have to. But I think that's, to me, the question, you know. This, this really isn't a cop-out answer, but I just don't know because I haven't seen enough of him at that level. I mean, I've seen him play well for Crystal Palace, but also he missed a chunk injured. So there was, there'd still be doubts for me about whether he can complete a season at the top flight because he hasn't done. Um, and I just haven't seen enough of him in a first team to make, make that judgment. Even for England, you know, he's, he's just played, he's played a full game here, a half an hour there, 20 minutes there. And there are really encouraging signs. The, the, the thing I worry about for, for Ruben is his path with so many managers seems to go the same route in that to start with when they're, team is training managers will often speak very kind of highly of him and be very impressed by him and yet once they've put him into games and had a look at him in games they tend to actually go off him a little bit um even with with england um now that makes me wonder whether they've all got the same reservations about his work rate off the ball or his tactical now switch star he's talking about and not being a manager or a coach and, and finding it difficult to judge that it's it's hard to say what exactly they're, they're not seeing or seeing that they don't quite like. But I do feel there's a bit of a pattern with Ruben in that managers are often very excited by his talent and then having watched him in a match situation don't quite feel they can trust him. You know, I think with Ruben, it's probably a catch-22, right, is the tactical naivety and maybe the runs off the ball probably come with game time, right? So you're literally stuck between a rock and a hard place of he's not where you yeah. want him, but to get him where you want him, he needs game time. Um, it's the yeah. ultimate, ultimate kind of back and forth that a player has to kind of figure out what that best balance is between being in a top club and getting valuable minutes. So hopefully though, like, you, you know, like we, has been reported and said that, you know, Ruben will get, continue to get some more minutes in the first half of the season. And, and hopefully that'll propel him onto the second one. Um, to me, I though, I kind of want to talk about our striking situation a little bit. Uh, we had a question from Akshay also saying, you know, we're down to two strikers that Tammy has left. Uh, I know you wrote a piece on Murata you know, after the Arsenal match, um, kind of talking about, you know, I, I think we're seeing a new Murata compared to last season, kind of as like you talked about. He's he's definitely going down significantly a lot, a lot less. I also think that personally my observation is you see a lot less of the arms up in the air, kind of maybe throwing them down mm -hmm. in frustration. Um, my one, my first question is just, do you, you know, as a fan, I'm concerned that we only have two strikers. We did this last season to some, you know, kind of lack of success. What about this season? Is it any different? And, you know, kind of your thoughts on the Murata 2.0 this season? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll deal with Murata first, if you don't mind. Um, I wrote that piece sort of during and after the Arsenal game, as it were, and I was really encouraged by his performance against Arsenal for the main part. He, he tailed off a little bit towards the end of the game when he came off, but for the main part, I was quite encouraged by that performance. And, and Sari has this wonderful record of, of really getting the best out of strikers. I mean, Higuain is the, the best example, but one of the big attractions of Sari is he's got this great record of getting getting strikers to score. And I thought it was the, the style of play suits Morata better, which is what he said after the Arsenal game. Unfortunately, he hasn't quite kicked on yet after that Arsenal game. Um, but I agree, there's less of the 
throwing the arms in the air. There's less of it falling down, although I suspect that's also part of the way Chelsea are now playing. I mean, he just wasn't programmed to to play how Conte wanted him to play with more long balls going up and and more of a physical game. And he, you could see he didn't enjoy himself last season. I think he is enjoying it more now, although I do think he's still struggling for confidence a little bit. I think the team need to take a little bit of responsibility as well. I mean, Morata, we've seen when he's been on form that he thrives on balls into the box. And I think the, the team need to provide him with more balls into the box, this kind of service that he actually thrives on rather than just always trying to go through the middle and, and, and cut through the middle of teams. Um, but I, I don't... I don't actually know yet whether I think he will will come good as it were and, and score sort of 20 goals. I think they're encouraging signs, but not enough to be fully confident of that. And then that kind of brings you on to your second question. I, I'm surprised too. I mean, I thought with the Europa League that uh, the club would want three out-and-out strikers at the, at the club and in the squad. Um, and I really thought Sari would have a good look at Batshuayi before allowing him to go out on loan. And he, he didn't really have a look at him at all in match situations. He obviously looked at him in training. I thought if Batshuayi was to go out on loan, it was going to be towards the end of August to a, a foreign club. And, and actually, they, they let him go out on loan pretty much just as the season started um, without looking at him in any game time. So they made an early decision on that, which took me by surprise. They were very happy for Tammy Abraham to stay, but he eventually, having wanted to stay... A little bit like Loftus-Cheek, I think, then changed his mind and, and decided he wanted to go and get minutes. So they're left with the two, although what I would say and what I would expect us to see at some point is, is Hazard again to play that false nine. But if he does play that false nine, I'd imagine it'll be a completely different type of false nine than, than what Conte was trying to do with him. I mean, Conte put him through the middle and obviously still played the same way, which was very, very difficult for Hazard, although there were times when Hazard actually did score quite a lot of goals through the middle, particularly in the title-winning season when, when Costa was out the side. Um, but I think it would be very different now if he played through the middle of Sarri. I think it would be a lot more on the ground. I think he would be given a lot more freedom to roam out wide and it would almost be a, a front three interchanging. And I I really expect us to see that at some point this season, given that Trey's Mertens did so well for Sarri in that role. And if Morata doesn't sort of become prolific. I think it'll be something that he looks at. So I think in probably in Sari's mind, he's got the three strikers. Also, I think that theory is strengthened by the fact that Hudson Odoi stayed at the club because if Mar if Hazard does have to play through the middle a bit, then Hudson Odoi gives you kind of a, a wing option off the bench where Willian or Pedro to come off. So I, th I think there's attacking options still. Um, whether there's whether there's a bit of a weakness there. Probably because I don't think they probably know exactly how that's all going to pan out at the moment and who's going to be the first choice. I don't think Giroud quite fits Sari's style, although he obviously likes him as an option off the bench to, to help the team get through games and hold up the ball. But I, I was surprised. I thought we'd, we'd go into the season with, with three out-and-out -out strikers with the Europa League and the amount of games they're going to play. So, Matt, um, speaking of the false nine, so you really think that we'll go with Eden over maybe a Pedro? I, th I think that's where a lot of people have been chatting about recently. Um, any? 
I can see why. I mean, Pedro Pedro's sort of reborn under Sarri, and he, he's really thriving with his style, and, and maybe he's more comparable to Trace Mertens than Hazard is. What I think we will see is the three of them as a front three at some stage with a lot of movement. And, you know, it may not be that one particularly stays through the middle and that they just interchange and interchange. But I, I do expect us to see that at the moment. But it's a good point. It could easily be Pedro that has more of the kind of Dre's Mertens role than, than Hazard because he he's flourished under Sari so far and he's he's obviously getting into more goal scoring positions judging by his, his goal scoring form at the moment. Okay, so so speaking about different styles of, you know, football, um are there do you have any updates on whether, you know, as far as the technical director or director of football? I don't have any specific updates. All I know is that once um once the Premier League transfer window shut um, and they've done most of there, there are obviously a few loan things to be sorted out in the last few weeks of August about foreign and championship loans. But I know when the, the majority of it was done um, back on August the 9th or whenever it was, that, um, that at that point, the club were very much going to start focusing on on narrowing the search down. There's been things going on in the background. I know they've had conversations with people who on Unfortunately, I can't name. I do know a couple of them. Um, they've had a few conversations. They hadn't. They hadn't actually decided on the exact role. Um, as far as I knew, I don't. I honestly don't know whether that's changed. But they were debating whether they want a like-for-like replacement to Michael Emanalo, as in very much a traditional technical director, or maybe they would split the role up um, and have someone to come and and almost work in one department and maybe another person to work in another department, one to help with the loans, one more with the first team. Um, I suspect it will end up being one person, not two people, because I think it will get messy otherwise. Um, but they, they're really going to focus on that now. And I, I, I would expect an appointment by the new year or, or early in the new year. I can't be more specific than that because I just don't have the information. Um, it's been quite secretive so far. And also it got put on the back burner with having to appoint the new manager, with then having to get the signings in. Um, obviously, as I think most people know, Marina Granovskaya has pretty much taken all on the respons- responsibility of everything, and she's also responsible for this appointment. So I think she's had to put it on the back burner. But, but that, along with trying to do a couple of contracts, I think will be their main priority off the pitch now. I think one thing that has come up around some of the candidates, and I think specifically... Balak, who you know excelled as a you know as an ambassador, I think off the pitch now for Chelsea in his post playing career, but you know there are concerns that people bring up about experience, and you know I tend to point them back to maybe what Dortmund has done previously, how Barcelona has appointed former players and put them into technical roles. From your perspective and, and your time around the club and maybe interactions with Balak, you know what are your thoughts about him as an appointment as you look to assess him? for kind of that candidacy? Well, what I would say is that I always thought that Michael Aminalo was massively underrated. Um, he got a lot of stick over over some signings that, that weren't his fault. And I also didn't think he got enough praise over some of the signings he made that then a lot of them were, were subsequently let go and have, have obviously not been seen to be wise decisions to let go since. I mean, the, the Belgian players were was certainly all Michael's responsibility, um, much to the annoyance of Andre Villas-Boas at the time with some of them who was questioning why they're bringing Belgian players in. 
Um, but he, he, I mean, he didn't come in as a hugely experienced guy, but he built up a huge wealth of experience. Um, and it's such a broad job at Chelsea because of the, the loan system they have in the academy system. It's a massively broad job, much broader than a lot of other clubs. So I think it will be tough for somebody like Balak, despite all his experience in the game, to come in and take it on, take it all on and be expected to do it all immediately. I suspect if someone like Balak came in, they would almost come in in an ambassadorial role to start with, um, focus very much on, on helping the young players, also probably focus quite a lot on talking to prospective new signings about what Chelsea is and, and why it would be good for their career. He would have to learn the whole loan thing before you could get involved because it's just hugely complicated trying to choose where's the best loan, trying to keep people happy, trying to look at whether one-year or two-year loans are best for their developers. It's a hugely complicated thing. So it's a massive, massive job. And it's really interesting whether you bring in someone like Balak, who I think would be, A, a big win with the fans. I think he'd be a great ambassador. I do think it's a good point that it would be following very much the German model um, and could work really, really well. And on the other hand, you could go for very experienced guys um, within their roles. You know, Monchi, for instance, who obviously has had great success in that role at his clubs, or someone even like Dan Ashworth, who's done a, done the job before at West Bromwich Albion, and also had huge huge success recently in the youth levels with England. Um, but obviously, those guys have no link to Chelsea, no real knowledge of what what Chelsea is and and what the club is like on the inside. What I do think will be that whoever comes in won't have the power that Michael Emanalo had. I mean, Michael Emanalo did have a line straight to Roman Abramovich um, and could make decisions himself. I don't think the next person coming in will have that. They will very much have to work closely with Marina Granovskaya, who will then, she will be the one dealing with Roman, not, not the next guy. So I think the role and the responsibility will be watered down slightly. So one thing that we often get excited about as fans and supporters is the lead up to the end of the transfer window, especially with the way that Chelsea has done their business over uh, some of the past couple of seasons. You know, the later, the better, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you, you know, as you're looking to report on the club, assess the value of a rumor in the transfer window and what advice would you give to fans slash supporters who are staying glued to Twitter, who are looking at the flight tracking information and trying to just, you know, make it through, you know, the transfer window as sane as possible? <laughs> if you want to make it through the transfer window as sane as possible, then don't look at social media until it's all finished. <laughs> um, because it, that, that's what drives you insane. Um it's really difficult, you know. I mean, it's a good question. The, the most difficult part of my job has actually become not getting information, although that is very difficult and, and shouldn't be underestimated, but it's actually trying to sift through the rumours and what's worth trying to check and what's what's not worth trying to check because you've got to think from my point of view, you have you have you never have just one contact. You have a few contacts who you can go to with this stuff and You've got to be careful with them. You can't be badgering them 
10 times a day, throwing every rumour at the sun that comes upon Twitter or the internet at them. Because, you know, obviously, eventually they've got a job to do and they can't be fielding wild rumours every day, all day, and they will stop answering calls. So that's one challenge in itself, is, is knowing what what information to take to people, uh, what you feel is worth checking out. And it's always incredibly, incredibly difficult. I mean, probably my best story is one of my most painful experiences covering Chelsea in terms of a transfer window. And that was that was a couple of years ago when um, David Louise came back. And I remember... I'd been out somewhere and I, I came back and I'll be honest, I'd had no, no wind of the fact. I knew everyone knew they were after central defender. I knew some of the names they, they were looking at. I knew some of the options available late in the window and I hadn't heard David Louise at all. So I, I come back home one night. Um, I switch on my phone and my phone's going and I'm, I'm getting told that there's, there's rumours doing the rounds that David Louise is coming back and that the deal's on. Uh, so I, I managed to get hold of probably one of my best Chelsea contacts um, to say, you know, what do you think about this room? And they said, Don't, do not touch it. It's, it's not going to happen. That's just not, not on the radar. Don't go near it. Now, the stupid thing I did do, which I've always regretted, is rather than just taking the information and ignore it, I also tweeted that, you know, the David Luiz thing just wasn't happening. Yeah. Now, obviously, I wake up the next morning and my phone's still going. People are saying, you know, it's, I think it's transfer deadline day now and people are, are telling me it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So I, I get back in touch with this person and said, please tell me that, you know, you were right, this isn't happening. And they kind of said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I think I got this one wrong. And, you know, your heart sinks. But you've got to trust your contacts. I mean, that, that was a person who's, who's never let me down before, never let me down since, honest mistake. Uh, they weren't privy to the information, so therefore, from checking it from them, I wasn't privy to the information. So it's a real minefield, a real minefield. It's so difficult. Um, all I can say from a journalist's point of view is we try and do our best. You know, We try not to pump out too much misinformation. We try to be responsible about it. You don't always get it right. To be honest, if you get 50% of it right these days, you're doing quite well. Um, because it's tough and the amount of rumours and the amount of information and because a lot of it is, is done overseas now, that can, can make it add another layer of difficulty to it. So, I mean, I don't really have any advice as such in terms of how to to keep in touch with the, the best information. I mean, all, all I can say is that I, I suppose readers of, of, pod, of websites and readers of newspapers and listeners to radio and and watchers of people on, on Twitter who know things will, will just for themselves decide who they feel gives them the best information. And generally, whilst there'll always be one or two people who probably break the news, if you then find that there's people then following that news, um, then you tend to know that it's been confirmed somewhere. And then you know that there's really something to it. So if you see a tweet go up or an article go up or a couple of tweets or articles saying, oh, Chelsea are after this guy, and then maybe in the next few hours or even the next morning, more and more people start saying, yeah, I've heard this and I've heard this, then you really know that there's, there's, there's someone out there saying, yeah, this is right. When it goes, when people put out one and it goes completely silent, it doesn't mean it's not right, but it probably means it's not quite in the pipeline because people aren't out there confirming it to people. But... Hey, 
if I could, I'd switch my phone off in the transfer window and, and wake up with it all done because I hate it. No, Matt, and you know we, uh, I think, as people who follow your work and you know have seen you break several stories, are always excited by the news, and it's almost as close to official typically when we read an article by you. So we are, you know, always you know paying attention to what you say and, and definitely appreciate all the work that you do. I know you you know kind of went and talked about something that was a learning lesson and maybe not your favorite moment. Is there a story that you? broke in your time in covering Chelsea that you're most proud of, you know, in their either being first to the scene or in the depth or understanding that you were able to provide in the, the accuracy of the reporting? Uh, there's, there's been a few, to be honest, that I, I always like. I mean, last, last season I did Michael, Michael Emanalo leaving, um, which was big news. Um, I think, I mean, people will probably always tell me, oh, you, you didn't break this story because they'll claim they read it elsewhere. But but ones I feel I did well on was was Morata coming in. Um, I felt that I got that early. I got the detail of that quite early. Pedro, that summer Pedro came from nowhere. I mean, Pedro was going to Man United. I remember being up quite late and receiving a call out the blue. Uh, me not having not heard any rumours on it particularly or chasing it and got a call out the blue from a contact who did me a good turn and pretty much said, you know, Pedro's signing and, and that, that really uh, came as a shock because everyone thought he was united. The more surprising they are, the better. Sometimes you do ones where, you know, people are onto them. People, you know, the Barkley was a running saga. I, I got it in the end, but everyone knew that Chelsea were after Barkley. The more surprising they are, the more gratification they give you as a writer. But, I mean, they're all good. They're all good. Stay a quick segue, Matt, uh, from, you know, kind of the Gary Cahill bit earlier to another player who you know i think has divided a lot of chelsea fans and that's marcus alonso um a guy who is clearly uh, you know up there in in skilled talent for for offensive reasons i think kind of splits the fan base defensively after hearing Maurizio sari's uh comments that he could be one of the best left backs in the in the world or that he already is is close to that achievement where do you kind of fall on Marcus Alonso as as a left back in this new system? Yeah, he's. Um, I think he sums up where Chelsea are at the moment actually really well, Marcus Alonso, because he's unbelievable going forwards. I mean, his his assists and goals and winning penalties and you know he he can look like he's playing as a forward. I mean, I saw Hazard Hazard said after the uh, the Bournemouth game that he sees Marcus Alonso running past him quite a lot and thinking kind of what you what you're doing. <laughs> um, but he's so effective. I mean, he's such a weapon for them, and he's he's very intelligent at, at knowing where to run in in attacking positions. I mean, he doesn't just go headless, kind of flying down the wing or anything. He he cuts inside a lot, and he he knows how to pick up space, and he knows how to arrive in the box and arrive onto the end of crosses very well. Um, but the reason I say I think he sums them up very well is because they don't quite have a balance either yet. Um, which is what they need to find because for as brilliant as he is going forward, and I think he is brilliant at it, they are definitely vulnerable down his side defensively. And um, I don't think they've really played against the team yet who've been able to fully take advantage of a fear when they play against a Liverpool or a Manchester City, um, possibly even, well, certainly a, a Tottenham possibly United, maybe not so much, is that they will take advantage of that. Um, 
I do think that Sari needs Sari and Alonso between them need to find a balance that he can't he can't go as far forward as he does all the time and then expect to to really really challenge at the top end because I would be amazed if they didn't get found out a little bit particularly with um, my old friend David Louise on his side in the centre as well I, I don't <laughs> feel that you've got quite that solidity to, to cover either so look he's an amazing weapon but against the teams they've been playing against fantastic I, I think we we will see the role balance out a little bit more as the season goes on but I mean, Sari's right. What Sari said was at the moment he's probably one of the best in Europe, which he is because, you know, Mendy's a great left-back, but it's, it's hard to name a lot of left, great left-backs in Europe right now. And what he actually said was if he improves on the defensive phase, he can become one of the best in the world. And I would 100% agree with that. I mean, if he can get the balance right and become a top-class defender as well as, you know, a really, really top-class attacking left-back, then he would be one of the best in the world. You know, speaking about some uh, other points of contention uh, on, in the defensive lineup, you know, w- what is your opinion about our best centre-back pairing? There's a lot of people who are, in my opinion, giving a lot of shtick to Louise and calling for Christensen. Where, where do you stand on, on that opinion? I just think... Looking forward, I'm, I'm disappointed that Christensen didn't start the season. Um, I thought that he did enough in the first half of last season to show what a fantastic central defender he can be. I always remember that game at home against Manchester City where City obviously paid Chelsea off the park. But the first thing Pep Guardiola did when he came onto the pitch at the end of the game was go straight up to Christensen, who had had a really good game. And he talked in his ear. Now, I tried to find out for many days what Guardiola had said to Christensen and no one would tell me. But I I suspect that he was praising him an awful lot and that he was just the kind of defender that Guardiola would like. And seeing how Guardiola stuck with Stones and how that has worked, I would like to have seen Chelsea stick with Christensen a little bit more. Um, I think if they're looking forwards and they're they're really trying to progress, I think you've you've got to be giving him some trust and and playing him for all his talent um, rather than going back to a David Luiz who's 31 and who isn't solid. Um, Personally, I think the best central defender at the club will become Ethan Ampadu in time. I think he's an unbelievable talent. Um, Not right now, but I think maybe in the next two years he will be the best central defender at the club. Um, but for now, I mean, my choice would be Rüdiger and Christensen. They would definitely make mistakes. Um, but I think that would be, be looking forwards. Uh, I get why Sari's playing Louise. Obviously, his distribution fits very much into the, the Sari ball, but I just don't see it as a progressive step. You know, sp- speaking of the centre-backs, you know, as a centre-back myself, I think um, when it comes to Gary, you know, I think a lot of the the vitriol we saw, I think a lot of people attributed maybe the 15, 16 season to some of his errors. Uh, I don't think we're necessarily fair. Do you think Christensen has the ability to, to, you know, to fit into that sorry ball and, and play the ball well to his feet and distribute out? Cause that, that's my concern. And I, I feel like that's why we're seeing, you know, Louise is because he plays that ball so well to his feet and can distribute out. Um, do you think Christensen has that? Yeah, I do. I, I do think in, 
in the same way that, that John Stones a couple of seasons was making some really terrible mistakes and, and getting a lot of criticism for it, I think you'd have to accept that that would happen with Christensen. But I, I think he's, he's talented on the ball. I think he can definitely play the ball out. It would just be a case of, of learning slightly on the job of um, where and when to play and and how to do it a little bit. But I actually think he steps out of defence really well. I think he's a, a lovely ball player. Um, I just think it's getting rid of that naivety. Um, I still think Gary's got something to offer. Um, I really do. I think in games where it's going to be a physical battle or game, times when you need to shut games down, I still think he's probably the best defender of the club of, of that sort of, you know, the real kind of old-fashioned battle. I think Rudiger's done really well, actually. I think Rudiger's would be my first choice in there. I think he's done really, really well. He can he can make mistakes too, but he can often recover. Um, he gets his body in the in the way and puts his body on the line. That the fans have really taken to him, and quite rightly. But it 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 doesn't look quite right at the moment. There's clearly work to do on the centre of defence. What I thought was a little bit odd of the summer actually was it was it was pretty clear that that. They were looking at defenders. I mean, they were certainly looking at Regani at Juventus. They had a look at a few others. And then it just, they obviously couldn't get who they wanted. And it, it, they obviously weren't desperate enough that they were just going to get a defender. It had to be the right one. But it, it flagged up the fact that I think long term, potentially another defender will come in or they will look at a way of, of, of strengthening it up or developing someone. Uh, I would be sad in a way if a new defender came in a very expensive one because, like I said, I think in two years, Ethan Ampadu could be the best defender at the club, but he won't if he doesn't get opportunities. All right. Um, Kind of backing it out to a bit more holistic view of the club, Matt. Um, We, you know, a few matches in, we're we're starting to get glimpses of sorry ball at Chelsea. Um, You know, we have two more i would say more manageable matches coming up obviously before the big test i would say is is liverpool on september 29th um you know with the high press and kind of the mistakes that chelsea are getting out of the way now um do you think that this early in the season chelsea are going to be able to cope with a liverpool or a city or a tottenham team who you know have had the same manager for you know two three four seasons now and kind of are much more in the the style of plays much more instilled um obviously they all really like to press do you think that this team at this stage will will kind of be able to almost have like a battle of the presses and and come out on top against one of those top teams uh Liverpool and City would worry me for them uh, because of their pace and their what they've got going forward. I think that I just see them causing Chelsea all kinds of difficulties at the moment at the back. Um, I think Tottenham, though, would be interesting. I think that the, the, just the, the way Sarri's got them playing already would, would have them far more competitive against Tottenham. I know they've been competitive results-wise, don't get me wrong, but they've you know, they, they've beaten Tottenham and stuff. It's not as though they've kept losing to Tottenham, but I think generally Tottenham have, have played better in, in some of those games. But I think now that Chelsea have got a more dominant dominant possession-based style, that would certainly suit them more for playing Tottenham. I think in time, it will suit them more against the big clubs. I mean, what, what Abramovich has always wanted from his managers, other than obviously trophies, which he's obsessed with, is he's obsessed with this idea of, Chelsea being a dominant big club and when he thinks about that I'm told it's 
he wants Chelsea to dominate games. He doesn't want. He doesn't really like counter-attacking football. He doesn't like defensive football because he sees it as being a small team mentality. He sees it as being, you know, a plucky, plucky runner-up mentality. He wants his teams on the front foot, dictating and dominating games against whoever they're playing against. And so he will love this style of football. Um, I do think against Liverpool and City, particularly that Liverpool game, it might be a bit too early for Chelsea to be able to actually do it and, and beat them with it. Um, I mean, Liverpool looks strong at the back now as well as, as that's so dangerous going forward. And Liverpool, of course, Chelsea, a lot of problems in recent seasons. So I think it's early days. Um, but certainly they're, they're well set up and it's, it's clicking faster than Sari expects. I mean, I remember being at Sari's, one of first, Sari's first press conferences when he said, kind of, give me three months before you start seeing it. And he, he warned of rocky times in the opening games. And I think he probably expected them to to lose one of these first four games and and maybe stumble a little bit. And um, I think it's taken him by surprise that they've they've picked it up a little bit quicker than he thought. But he, he knows they're a long way off what he wants yet. Yeah, he keeps talking about the speed at which we play, not just the high possession, but he wants it to go faster and faster, which, look, I think the Chelsea fans are really excited to kind of see this team play at an even faster level and, and more attacking because, um, as you said, the, the counterattack has kind of been where the club's been at recently, but that's not really, you know, always the best from a fan's perspective. So, anyways, um, Dan, you had one. Yeah, you know, so we, we talked a little bit about Balak earlier, potentially coming back. We did get to see, you know, one Chelsea great hero legend come back in Zola returning to the team, now working as an assistant to Mauricio Sarri. You know, how how have you seen that appointment? And, you know, how, you know, we, we also kind of observed is maybe, you know, with the, the way that the conversations are happening uh, between the two in the dugout that, you know, Zola could be potentially having a pretty significant, you know, maybe opportunity to influence those key substitutions. It seems like they're talking at the the right moment, at the right time, and the substitution happens. Um, what, what do you understand about their working relationship so far? Yeah, I mean, they, they had a relationship before, so they've been close before. Um, so it's not a new relationship as such. It's a new sort of working relationship. It's not a new, new relationship. Um, it's funny, actually, because I was joking to someone at the game that, that the Sari was in the era of the fourth official at one point against Bournemouth, and he's far too nice a guy to have that job. He, they need a real Rui Faria kind of Rottweiler type to be going at the fourth official. <laughs> too nice for that role. Um, but um, no, I mean, it's interesting. I interviewed Ross Barkley a couple of weeks ago, and Ross was telling me that Zola's the one who's staying behind with him after training and doing a lot of finishing work and a lot of technical work. So I think certainly the the technical players and the midfielders and and even the Hazards and the Pedros of this world will be doing a lot of work with with Zola and him sort of passing on some of the tricks of the trade and and some of the things he used to do and you know you couldn't really learn from anyone better in those positions. He'll also be able to talk really well to to some of the players about what Chelsea means and and what it means to to really become a Chelsea hero. I mean, it'd be interesting whether he's having any conversations with Hazard, with him trying to convince Hazard to stay about maybe the legendary status that Hazard could get to were he to sign a new contract and actually almost sort of finish his best years with the club. Um, 
and really get to a status that probably Zola's at, that, that Hazard's not quite at in terms of Chelsea legends. So he can help on lots of all, lots and lots of different levels. I mean, he hasn't done brilliantly in management himself, but plenty of good, very, very good number twos and first team coaches are, are actually terrible managers because they, they can't quite do the leadership, but they can do the teaching and the coaching and the, the almost caressing by kind of putting an arm around a player. So, I think that that'll be that'll be Zola's role. I mean, he'll be keeping everyone happy, keeping everyone upbeat, and I don't mean just players. I mean the whole staff. He's a it's such a lovely guy and such a positive guy. One of the problems of the Conte reign became what an unhappy place it was last season at Cobham, and that just again wasn't the players. It was the whole staff. There was a cloud over the place, and it's it's a wise appointment because as much as anything, he will he's lifted that that cloud and. He, he, I, for me, it can only be positive. It can only be positive. So final question, Matt, and again, we really appreciate the time today. Um, you know, I think a lot of Chelsea fans are interested in the atmosphere around the club and can you know kind of notice a tangible difference with Maurizio Sarri coming in. Uh, we got a question from one of our listeners asking, do you think that Maurizio, even though he's on a three-year deal, will be able to bring stability uh, to Chelsea? Is there any sort of you know, I, I know that's a loaded question with a lot of different potential answers, but do, do you get a sense that things are different this time around? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. I love it. <laughs> I've, there's, there's, there'll never be... There'll just never be stability at Chelsea with the way they're set up. It's not set up for stability. And it's part of what they feel brings about results. The instability, if you like, brings out the best in people, keeps people on their toes, keeps people believing that they have to overachieve and overperform to to remain in their roles and remain in their positions. So that instability is is what Chelsea are, have been about since Roman Abramovich has, has been the owner and it, it's what they feed off and it's what they'll continue to feed off. I mean, one of the best signs of the fact that not even Sari particularly thinks there'll be a lot of stability is that when he was asked um, about his smoking recently, he said, well, he's going to look to quit for one or two years and then he'll start again. The inference being in one or two years, he won't be at Chelsea in a country where he can't smoke where he wants. So it was a joke, you know, it wasn't (laughs) a serious sort of, but these guys who come in know exactly what the club's about. I mean, they've, they've, they've been through it lots of times. I don't think the stability, particularly at any Premier League club anymore. I mean, even Manchester City, but at some point, Pep Guardiola is not going to stay at Manchester City for 10 years because he's not that kind of coach. So, I, he, look, hopefully hopefully, what will happen with Sari and what I do think there's a chance with is that he could see out the majority of his contract, if not all of it, without there having to be any sort of terrible meltdown or terrible falling out. There's no reason why that can't happen. But I don't see a coach coming into Chelsea and, and spending years and years and renewing their contract and, and you know, even spending sort of five years there because I, I just don't think that's what the club is set up for and what, what Roman Abramovich sees as being a, a recipe for success. I think he he likes the change. He likes the new ideas. He likes the fresh challenges. He likes being people kept on their toes. Um and 
the coach is always the easiest one to change. It's not easy to sell players. It's not easy to get the value you think you, you should get on players. It's then not easy to replace players. Um, you know, it's tough picking the right coach, but it's easier replacing coaches than it is players. So it'll always be the coach who goes before the players at Chelsea. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't subscribe to the fact that it's a bad thing because they've been so successful with it. It's been good for managers as well. I mean, people, Brendan Rodgers once famously said he wouldn't want to kill a career by going to Chelsea, but most of the managers who come to Chelsea do actually win trophies before it all goes wrong for them. So it's not that bad for their CVs. Um, it's just whether this one can end amicably, which would be nice, because I think it was such a shame the way it ended with Conte, because Conte in that title winning season became such a hero you know, it wasn't always great football, but it was very exciting. And he, he really had a connection with the crowd at one stage. And it was a shame that that all, all turned sour because I, I do think he should be looked on as, as doing a fantastic job. And unfortunately, his legacy has been tarnished a little bit. We are also subscribers of the theory um, for, you know, Antonio Conte being remembered for a lot of great things that he's done. So I think that... Uh, yeah, it'll it'll be really cool. Um, yeah, wow, that was awesome, Matt. I just I guess for us, just want to say thank you again yeah. for for coming on and, and joining us as a guest and spending some time with us. Really appreciate that. No worries, thank you. Obviously, to all of our listeners, uh, make sure you are following Matt on social media. Um, I believe it's Matt Law underscore DT. Is that right? It's Matt underscore Law underscore DT. There we go. Yeah, I'm sure and people can find me. Absolutely. We retweet a lot of your stuff as well, so you can always go to our social profiles as well. Um, but again, you know, just a huge thanks. Uh, make sure you guys all follow Matt throughout the season because of a lot of great insights. But uh, again, um, thank you so much, and we appreciate your time today. Good stuff. Cheers. You too. All right. Well, as you all heard, that was an amazing interview with Matt Law, again, of The Telegraph. Super excited to be able to have him on as a guest. But we do want to go ahead and look forward, uh, just kind of see where the top four stands as we head into the international break. But Nick, before that, super, super exciting announcement that we will be kind of helping our fans get through a boring international week end. Correct? Yeah. As you know, international breaks are the bane of our existence here at the podcast, um, especially when there's no big tournament happening so a couple of things to to help tide you over first we've teased that the joe cole interview we did about a month ago in in tampa would be coming out and we can now confirm that we will have uh a video and a podcast debuting uh sometime around next weekend we're thinking maybe a friday monday's sort of release but don't hold us exactly to that or send us messages saying where is it when it is ready, it will be published. So, it, you know, we're looking forward to that. And that's going to be really fun, engaging content. Joe was amazing to be with. And then the second thing we want to do is by this time next, you know, by, by next weekend, we should have all of our details for our next London trip finalized. And, you know, I'm going to give some, some hints here that it's going to be towards the end of the festive period maybe around the new year. Um, so start looking at your calendars. And then as soon as we have details to share, we will release it. If you are interested and want to get um, some some knowledge beforehand, feel free to DM us on Twitter or Instagram or email us contact at London is And we will begin to answer questions. So many questions, so many answers. We're all over it. Hit us up. 
But as we look ahead to, you know, how the table stands, obviously international break, no matches, just a bunch of boring internationals. Mike, the top four, top six, right? I guess, you know, the Premier League is more competitive these days, so we kind of call it a top six. Uh, three teams still undefeated, you know, typical giants of Europe, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're Watford's, right? Legends, man. They're, they're huge. You know, as well as Liverpool and uh, a certain uh, Chelsea FC, right? It's very tight on goal difference. Obviously, eight, seven, six being the only differences between the three teams. Man City fourth, Tottenham fifth, and Bournemouth, Dan, in six. I mean, your reactions and kind of surprises. I know we did our preseason predictions, and, you know, some of us had Chelsea in the top four. Some of us <laughs> did not. Um, but, I mean, honestly, this is a bit of a surprising table as we enter the, you know, the first international break. Not surprising if you believed in the Mauricio Sarri project. It's almost as if we're a month in, Dan. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a month in, but when you factor the fact that we have already you know, earned 12 points, uh, 12 points in four matches, which is uh, 17% in four matches of the total amount of points we acquired all of last season, uh, in 10% of the games. So uh, our, our points per match average uh, is looking to trend hopefully much, much higher than it was last season. And that makes me happy. All right. Well, I think that, you know, as, as we kind of look into this, you know, from a, from a Chelsea perspective, Nick, um, maybe not as many clean sheets as we would have wanted, but plenty of offense going forward, which is exciting. Obviously, the next two matches... Um, Cardiff, West Ham, before the big test, Liverpool, which, you know, very easily could be, you know, how you determine who is still undefeated as you head into October. It's true. Uh, I, I do think, and this was something we called out early in our in our season preview, th- this betting in period for Maurizio Sarri is going to be crucial. Um, and so it's nice to see that we're taking maximum points. Uh, there's still a lot of defensive uh, you know things that need to be adjusted. You know, I think Matt Law covered off on on Marcus Alonso and and how the positioning eventually changes. You know, clearly David Luiz has some adjusting to do, uh, and then I think you know the way that Rudiger and uh, Cesar Azpilicueta uh, interchange is going to be really important as well. So uh, as we as we look ahead, now I would, I would you know kind of take Liverpool out of it because they're just kind of a different beast, but you would look for this team to improve Mike uh, in that area and make sure that we're tightening up the screws as we head into October, November, December. Yeah, definitely. I think more, more time we have together, hopefully we will figure out that the back four working with the midfield. Um, And, you know, maybe kind of what we were talking about before, maybe, maybe we'll see a Christensen, maybe, Maybe, you know, Louise's job was to get us 12 points and then, you know, maybe ease in one of the younger center backs. Well, I think that, you know, most Chelsea fans are going to be pleasantly surprised at this rate, you know, seeing that, you know, with the new manager, new system, some new players, you know, obviously Jorginho just slotting right in, starting to see more and more from Kovacic and Nazar getting back to fitness. It has been um, a very great beginning to the season but it is still early days as we mentioned only four matches played so far 34 more to go all of them in england for now i'm just kidding dan i don't want to open that can of worms but my point is um a lot of time to go early signs are really positive um i think that 
you know, at this point, there shouldn't really be too many concerns. But anything that you are kind of looking forward to at the international break? I know you're usually really big on the injury watch during those weekends. It's going to be tough. You know, Chelsea are thankfully gifted with having many international players, many in, who are called up to their respective squads. You saw Marcos Alonso, Morata, Kepa, um, all called up for the, the Spanish national team. I think Azpilicueta as well. Uh, Jorginho was called up. Kovacic was called up. Conte, of course, called up. Emerson uh, called Cap- up. Emerson called up, Caballero called up, William called, uh, called up, Hazard called up. I mean, you, you basically, I think, sorry I made the point, that you've got six or seven first-team players like Rob Green who just didn't get the call-up request. So Unbelievable. You know, there, there's there's going to be some uh, – it's really hard to play five-a-side when there's not even enough to field two sides. So I will just make sure and say a prayer that Roberto Martinez does not somehow injure Eden Hazard again through training procedures. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that will pretty much wrap up this episode. I hope that, you know, it is everything you wanted heading into the international break. Obviously, having Matt Matt Law on was a uh, a huge bonus uh, even for us. So, you know, again, hope you all enjoyed it. But, you know, guys, as we as we wrap up this episode and obviously into to a little bit of break, we will do some final, you know, kind of final thoughts and let you guys kind of leave the listeners with a little something until we come back the the following week. So, Nick, um, any big plans for your international break or anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? No, I, I think I would just like to to quickly talk about Kovacic, um, you know, which we, you know, we'll, we'll touch on in, in, in part one if you haven't listened to that yet. But I, I just, I, you know, we, we, we mentioned where the goals are going to come from midfield. And I think this is an area that you start to see a little bit of a glimpse um, that he's kind of moving in that direction to be a maybe a goal scorer uh, for Chelsea, and I think we just got to give him a little bit of time to bet in with the team. You know, he's not 100% match fit yet, uh, but he is putting in. You know, you can see over the last three weeks, he's putting in shift after shift after shift, and you would expect uh, that he would continue to improve over time. And I, I'm just really impressed with uh, with his passing ability and his interchange so far. So uh, hopefully. You know, we, we have a chance for him to uh, to continue to improve, and and for some of our other uh, more more uh, goal facing options to uh, deliver uh, either passes for him to convert on or, or or vice versa. Awesome, Dan. What about you? You know, I'm just looking forward to getting back to focusing on Chelsea Football Club. You know, it probably was one of the most ill-timed international breaks we could ask for given this amazing run of form and the fact that you're looking ahead to Cardiff and West Ham as our next two Premier League matches before Liverpool kicks off. So the opportunity to potentially win six in a row, go into this match against Liverpool undefeated, potentially against Liverpool being undefeated, that's going to be an incredible game. And I'm eagerly looking forward more to the end of September than I am right now, the uh, the very beginning moments of it. I mean, that's fair enough. Even Maurizio Sarri said he's just going to spend the international break walking his dog. I mean, Mike, hopefully even you have something more exciting than that. <laughs> I'll be I'll be walking my dog as well. But, you know, I, I kind of I'm hoping that some of the supporters we start focusing on. We This is a new season and new looks. And I think there's a lot of times where 
we see, keep seeing questions of who's better, Pedro or William or, or Barkley or, you know, Ruben. And my thought is we have lots of options. And I'm just really excited to see how Sari is going to outfit the team for any given specific match. And I, I kind of – I'm looking for – even with Giroud and Murata. Like at this point, it just kind of haps, makes me happy to see what's going to come out. And I feel like everybody's just going to be doing their best. So – that's yeah, I, I would like to think so as well, you know. Um, but that'll wrap us up. All right, fans, that is going to do it. Again, first international break of the season, always the worst. Thankfully, we are even more upset because of how well the team are playing and the results are coming. But don't worry, it'll all be back. Look ahead for that Joe Cole video uh, on the weekend, and then we're actually going to drop the full-length podcast on that Monday. So even though there's no matches, there's still a podcast coming at you, which will be great. It's a little bit different format, but I'm sure you will love it. So until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.